Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to dive into that theme this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Romans chapter 5. All of Scripture, Paul says in another letter, not Romans, but 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, All of Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I believe that, obviously. There's nothing in our Bible, Jesus did not author. Nothing in our Bible that God didn't intend to equip us and prepare us and build us up. Every word of Scripture is from him and for us. That's nothing but true. What's also true is that God's word for us is not primarily about us. It's about Jesus. And that's also nothing but true. The volume of the book, we read it prophetically in Psalm 40. We read it emphatically in Hebrews 10. The volume of the book is written of him, written of Jesus. He's on every page. He's in every story. He's pictured in every feast day, every sacrifice, every miracle, every aspect of the tabernacle. Wherever you turn in your Bible, open up, pick a page. Scripture is either picturing or prophesying or presenting or praising Jesus. There's nothing in here that doesn't. And yet, all that being true, there are still some passages, some verses, that when we come to them, it's almost like we're being ushered into the Holy of Holies, isn't it? And I think we get to say that. All of the tabernacles spoke of Jesus. That's a fascinating study if you've never undertaken it. Every detail of the tabernacle spoke of Jesus. But then you get behind the veil. Then you get into the Holy of Holies, and there dwelling between the cherubim is the presence of Jesus. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little dramatic. But aren't there passages of Scripture that, I don't even know how to say it, that there are more? God will provide himself a sacrifice. He was wounded for our transgressions. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It is finished. There, there are verses that almost seem to say, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Don't worry, I'm not going to. But as we turn to Romans 5 this morning, that's where I think we're headed. That's where I think we find ourselves. We've made our way through chapter 1, Paul telling us about God revealing himself to humanity only to be rejected universally. Chapter 2, he talked about God's wrath for those who reject him. And chapter 3, he talked about the righteousness of that wrath and the inevitability of it, the universality of it, and the futility of our efforts to escape it. 
the harder you try to, 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 to earn salvation, the harder you try to make it to heaven on your own, Paul said, the worse it is for you. The only hope any of us have, Paul said, and we sang a few minutes ago, is Jesus and only Jesus. Chapter 3, Paul said, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 23. And the only way of salvation is only Jesus. Verse 24, the only way of salvation is to be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. This is, this is the case Paul has been building. This is the argument he's been crafting. And now in chapter 5, we get to what he's been leading up to. Therefore, and this is our text this morning, Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, because all of that is true, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Take off your shoes. We're on holy ground. I mean, not seriously, but... But seriously, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If that doesn't take your breath away, you're either not awake yet or I'm reading too fast. Either way, let's slow down this morning. We raced through all of chapter 4 last week. Let's slow down this morning and ponder the enormity of what Paul just said having been justified by faith, having been declared righteous, the only way that we could be through faith in Jesus Christ, by believing his death was sufficient, was enough to pay for our sin, and by choosing to let it, by asking God, can it? By choosing to repent of our sin and follow Jesus, we become, look back at chapter 4, we become people like David. Chapter 4, verse 8, by believing God and choosing Jesus, we become people like David, people to whom God does not impute, better word, reckon, sin. Our sin doesn't count against us anymore. Because we've put our faith in Jesus, our sin isn't a barrier to heaven anymore. In Christ, our sin is done. It's over. It's forgiven. We are eternally not guilty. Eternally not guilty. We have, through Jesus, peace with God. The war is over. Grayson talked about rejoicing this morning, celebrating. The war is over. We were enemies of God. You might not have thought of yourself that way. But it's not about feelings, it's about facts. And the fact is, we were. But in Christ, everything has changed. An amnesty has been declared. We're at peace with God. And again, Depending on the day, you may not feel at peace, but in Christ you are. Because again, it's not about feelings, it's about facts. We were at war with God, that's a fact. It's a war we were going to lose, that's another fact. 
God's justice and judgment were aimed squarely at us. His wrath was waiting for us until God retargeted, until he redirected his justice and judgment at Jesus. And because he did, God has laid down his arms. He has nothing against us anymore. We're no longer foes, but friends. More than friends, and we sang this too, children. We're children of God. Yes, we are. That's what Paul's reminding us of in verse 2. You and I are children of God. Children who have access to God. Access by faith, Paul says. Access anytime we want. Access even when we don't want. We're no longer strangers. We're family. We're no longer beings created by God and yet not having a relationship with God. We're sons and daughters now. And we have the same access that God's other son, his begotten son, Jesus has. We have the same access. Think about it. We've got the same access to God the Father that Jesus has. And look carefully at how Paul describes this. He said we not only have access to God like like a revolving door, like a coming and going kind of a thing, He says we not only get to come before God, but we, what does he say? Stand before God. Wherever we are, you're sitting, but right now you're also standing before God. Tim Keller comments on this. And, And he goes down the same road that a lot of people go down. He says we're king's kids. And the way that we know that we're king's kids is the only one who dares wake up the king at three o'clock in the morning and ask for a drink of water is a child. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's, that's good, that's fine, it's cute as far as it goes. But to really convey what Paul is, what Paul is, is, is trying to, to get across, we need to understand. The picture Paul is presenting is not little boy, little girl, gets up, wakes up, climbs out of bed, turns the doorknob, walks out of their bedroom, walks down the hall, talks to the guard standing outside, dad's bedroom, because dad's the king. Can I talk to my dad? Knock on the door, wait for a response, walk in to dad who's just waking up. Dad, can I have a drink? I mean, that, that would be amazing, just, just that. But it's not the picture Paul's giving us. The reality Paul is describing for us is we wake up in the same room where our father, the king, is already awake and working. And as we open our eyes, he's looking straight at us. He's making eye contact with us. He's holding out a glass of water for us. That's what it is to stand you see the difference? When, when we accepted Christ, we were ushered into God's throne room. We were welcomed before God's throne of grace, and we've never left, and we never will. We're not waiting to stand in the presence of God. Verse 2, we're in the presence of God spiritually. We're looking forward to being in the same room physically, beholding the glory of God in person. But today we stand How? Why? What? 
I mean, it, 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 it's mind-blowing. And Paul tells us the, the, the answer to all three of those questions. What, why, how? The answer to all three questions is grace. Where are we? What are we? Who are we? How did we get here? That's four questions, but it could, it, it could be six. It could be 12. The answer to all of them would still be grace. And maybe the reason we rush past verses like this sometimes, and I'm not throwing stones. I'll talk about me. The reason I rush past verses like this sometimes, I'll come to Romans 5 in my devotional reading or in my study, and I'll say, Romans 5, man, that's the gospel. I'm glad that's there. I'm going to go read something I don't already know about. Maybe the reason we don't stop and stay and say, wow, just wow, is we don't stop to think about what we mean or what God means when he talks about grace. So let's not make that mistake this morning. Let's talk about grace this morning. Let's start with a definition. Let's explore three misconceptions. And then we'll end up talking about the implication for us. No slides this morning, um, but pretty simple outline. Definition of grace, misconceptions about grace, an implication that grace has for us. The definition part, bullet point one on your outline, is easy-ish. We, we've got a definition, most of us. We've had a definition of grace since we were saved, probably before we were saved. Grace is, if I say grace is, grace is what? Unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve. If we push ourselves a little bit harder and say, can, can we make it sound a little bit more, you know, theological, we, we might say the unmerited favor of God that justifies the undeserving sinner through faith in Jesus Christ, you know, if we want to be fancy. Because that's just what Paul has been saying. If we, if we go back and read what Paul has written, we can harvest that definition. The unmerited favor of God that justifies undeserving sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. We're familiar with the definition, more or less, and we're comfortable with it, most of us. Maybe we couldn't have come up with the theological language, but we collectively agree we're talking about grace. That's what we're pointing at. Yes? Okay. But that being true, I would still argue, it's not the word I want, I would, I would observe that we can agree on a definition of grace and simultaneously have serious misconceptions about grace, both at the same time. We can hold a definition, a biblically accurate definition in one hand, and still hold on to some misconceptions in the other, right, right alongside each other. See, we've already moved to point two on the outline. Definition, check. We've made it to misconceptions. Pastor named Jeremy Trent, pastors Reality LA. Reality LA, Reality London, the Reality family of churches is actually a Calvary spinoff. And Pastor Jeremy does a good job of calling out misconceptions. He's got like seven of them. I'm not going to preach his sermon. I'm just going to steal three of his really good points. <laughs> one of the misconceptions he calls out, one of the misconceptions we have about grace is we think on some level, deep down, grace is for deserving people. 
people who would have been good, they would have been godly, they would have been holy, if it wasn't for all, you know, the sin in the world dragging them down. The sin that dragged us down. Because we deserve grace. Grace is for deserving people who just caught a bad break, got dragged down by the world. The problem with this view, there's actually a lot of problems with this view. Biggest problem with this view, it's exactly backwards. It's 180 degrees wrong. The world didn't drag us down. We dragged the world down. The source of sin in the world is not the world. The source of the sin in the world is us. We've met the enemy. It's us. Grace is not God fixing an error in the system, debugging the code, righting a wrong, rescuing innocent victims. Grace, grace is not God looking for good people that he's supposed to love. Grace is God's love looking for sinful people that he's going to save. Oh, I, I, I knew that, Patrick. Me too, usually. But I know that I sometimes forget it, and maybe I'm not the only one. I sometimes forget how undeserving I am because I'm spoiled. We've got a word we use for that in the United States. We talk about entitlement. And you're familiar with that in other contexts, I'm sure. We talk about how quickly people can go from receiving a gift gratefully to expecting that same thing, anticipating it impatiently, to looking at it as a right and demanding it arrogantly. We're familiar with that progression, right? In our society, sometimes in our homes, sometimes from our kids. Not mine, you know, but others. I think we get that way with grace sometimes. No, I don't. I know we get that way with grace sometimes. Entitled. Arrogantly demanding it as a right. And we'll get that way with grace every time we start to think of grace as something that we deserve even a little bit. We don't. Grace is for deserving people? No, that's a misconception. That's the first misconception. If you're taking notes, that's 2A. Grace isn't God's goodness shown to people who deserve goodness. Grace is God's goodness shown to people who deserve hell. That's misconception number one. Misconception number two that we have of grace, can have. Grace is God lowering his standards. 2B if you're taking notes. And the idea here is that somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God had a change of heart. The law just wasn't working. People kept on rebelling. So God needed to change the program. When all else fails, lower your standards, right? So let's forget about the law. Let's just love people where they're at. Except no, and this is Pastor Jeremy, grace is not God letting up on his law, but sending his son to fulfill the law. I'm quoting him because I couldn't think of a better way to say it. Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't, walked in holiness when we didn't. God couldn't lower his standards. He would cease being God. He would cease being holy. So instead, he sent his son to meet his standards so he could be a perfect sacrifice and purchase our forgiveness so that through his spirit, we could begin 
to walk in love and holiness and righteousness today. If that doesn't make sense, let me come at it this way. Think about what Jesus said to the chief priests and elders in Matthew 21, 31. You don't have to turn there because what he said is really straightforward. Matthew 21, 31. Jesus says to the chief priests and elders, the religious leaders of Israel in Jesus' day, prostitutes and tax collectors, by which he meant thieves, the most immoral people in Jewish society will enter the kingdom of God before you do. How does that work? How does that happen? Does God lower his standards so that thieves and prostitutes can enter? It's okay now. I said it wasn't, but now it is. It's fine. Just, just you're with me. Come on in. Does God really overlook sin, redefine sin, decide that he's okay with a kingdom populated by harlots and criminals? The answer is obviously no. If he did, heaven wouldn't be heaven anymore, for one thing. Grace doesn't change God's standard is the thing. Grace changes us. Grace doesn't overlook sin or redefine sin. It transforms us. It transforms sinners from prostitutes and thieves to children of God. That's misconception number two. Grace is God lowering his standards Third and final misconception, grace is God providing that last little bit we need to get over the hump. And the way I picture this, because I'm a child of the 70s and I watch way too much television growing up, and even if you're not and you didn't, if you've watched TV at all, if you've seen a movie ever, you've seen this scene. You've seen the scene where the good guy's being chased by the bad guy. And they're, they're ganging on him. Maybe it's one bad guy. Usually it's a whole pack of bad guys. And he's running or he's on a motorcycle or he's something. But he's trying to catch up with a vehicle of some kind. And if he can get to that vehicle, that motorcycle, that plane, that bus, that helicopter, the other good guys will whisk him away to safety. Good guy's running, bad guy's right behind him. He, he just needs to, to get that last little bit. And when everyone is convinced that he can't possibly make it because the car, the plane, the bus, the automobile, it's, it's, it's moving away too fast, someone reaches out. Those last few inches that, that our good guy, that our hero, couldn't sprint hard enough, couldn't lean far enough, couldn't lunge, somebody reaches out and bridges that gap and pulls our hero on board. Except that's not how it works. That's, it might be grace, but it's not saving grace. That's not the grace that saves us. Saving grace isn't that last little few inches that we need. We needed a lot more than a few inches to be right with God, didn't we? We were dead in our sin which means we weren't running after God trying to escape the bad guys. We were the bad guys. And we were standing with a whole mess of other bad guys shooting at God's car, not trying to catch up with it, attacking it, but all the time not realizing we'd been shot. We're shooting at God not realizing we're bleeding out. Dead men standing. When suddenly, and for no good reason, God comes back to rescue us. You want to make grace into an action movie, there's your script. 
that's your scene. We're dying, still shooting at God, still throwing shots, when suddenly God spins a U-turn, drives into the gunfire, leaps out of the car, runs into the hail of bullets, does CPR on us, all the while bad guys are shooting at him, laying down his life to save us. This is my illustration, it's not Jeremy's. If you don't like it, don't get mad at him. We were lying on the pavement, bleeding out. And no one would have blamed God if he just kept going. If he'd just driven away. Angel in the passenger seat saying to God, he got what he deserved. Angel in the back seat saying to God, he's already as good as dead. Just drive. God spins a U-turn. Both of them say, if you go back, you'll be killed. And God says, I know. This is either really working for you or it's completely not. The, the point is, grace isn't that last little bit that gets us on board. Grace is everything. Grace is everything. Everything that picks us up, turns us around, transforms us from bad into good, from dead into alive, from enemy into child. New Testament scholar Andrew Lincoln, not the actor, but the scholar, says you can read the Bible from one end to the other and back again, and it's grace all the way through. And that's what Paul's been telling us. For four chapters, he's been saying to us, grace got us where we are. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, and now grace is where we are. So now that we're here, standing in grace... What are the implications? Third point on your outline already. Now that we're here, what do we do? And I actually think this one is easy. Maybe not easy, but simple. Because Paul's already told us, having arrived where we are by grace, we stand in grace where we are. Having arrived where we are by grace, what do we do? We stand in grace where we are, and we invite others to join us. But to do that effectively, to do that and have an impact, to do that and make a difference, we cannot, we must not redefine where it is that we're standing. We cannot, we must not decide or pretend we're anywhere but exactly where we are. We can't deny what Paul says in verse 2. We can't deny we're standing in grace. But we do. What am I talking about? Let me get there by way of an example. A pastor friend of mine years ago, not anyone from here, He's never been here. He's never spoken here. You don't know him. I think Mike knows him. The rest of you don't know him. But 15 years ago, 15 years ago, it comes to light that his teenage daughter was being sexually abused by a member of his church who told all the lies that predators tell. You're so mature. In biblical times, it would have been God understands special place in hell. Eventually, he was found out. 
And from the pulpit, not right away, but after some time had passed, and, you know, perspective, from the pulpit, my friend told the story of the night that he found out how his heart was ripped open and how he drove to the abuser's home with a truck full of weapons and a plan to take his life. Now, the point of the story is that he didn't. And it's, and, it's, and it's an amazing story because on the way, he cried out to God and God answered him. And the Holy Spirit filled the cab of his truck so that he couldn't even see to drive and dramatically met him and spoke to him and told him, this isn't what I saved you for. It's a powerful story and I'm, I'm not remotely doing it justice. But when he shared it from the pulpit at his church, people left. Not all, but not none. People left, and they left saying, we don't want a pastor who could come that close to that kind of violence. Even when it's your daughter? If you were that close to that kind of violence, well, you shouldn't have been, and if you were, I don't want to know about it. You shouldn't be talking about it. How is this edifying? And it turns out it wasn't just a few people in his fellowship who felt that way. He shared the story at a men's retreat only to be taken aside by a group of elders and rebuked. This isn't what people need to hear. We need to tell people Christianity is safe, not a struggle. He was invited to teach at a pastor's conference, but when he got there, he was taken aside and he was warned, if you share that story, because people had heard about the story, if you share that story, we're going to turn your mic off. Don't talk about your struggle. Talk about Jesus. Don't talk about the night you almost lost your ministry. Talk about grace. Talk about grace. Talk about... That is grace! And this is my point. A father overwhelmed by guilt and grief, only to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit? How is that not grace? See, the mistake that we make, the, the, the mistake some in this congregation make and the people at the men's retreat and the people at the pastor's conference, the mistake that, that we, we can all make is we forget having been saved by grace, today we stand in grace. Having been saved by grace, we, we so easily forget that today we get to and we have to live in grace giving it and receiving it and clinging to it. Sam Albury writes about this a lot. You've heard me quote Sam Albury before. He's an Anglican pastor from the UK, actually relocating to Nashville to do ministry with Ray Ortland, who I quoted at length a couple weeks ago. Pastor Sam points out, and he, and he says it really well, somehow... In our churches, somehow in our families, somehow in the body of Christ, we've allowed this idea to set in and take root and take hold. We need to rep Jesus. And if we don't look good, he won't look good, so we better look good. We've got to look good so that he'll look good. The problem is, I know I'm not really good, or at least I'm not always good. But people need to think I'm good, so they'll think Jesus is good. So on goes the mask. How are we? Oh, we're fine. I'm fine. Are you fine? 
Oh, yes, I'm fine. Well, then we're fine because I'm fine and you're fine. Everybody's fine. We're Calvary Chapel fine. Our, I'm fine becomes our mantra. It becomes our, our motto, our slogan. And we get really uncomfortable when anyone forgets their line. How hard can it be? You're fine. It's two words. I'm fine. When someone forgets their line, ooh. When someone starts singing a different song. When, en- when someone raises their hand and says, I- I'm not fine, actually. I'm, I'm not okay today. I'm actually really struggling. <sighs> well, that's not fine. And, 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 and so we push back. You need to think positive thoughts. We push back and, and, and we pour on the platitudes. Uh, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and he's going to, so you should. Or we just turn and run. I'll pray for you in your icky not fineness over there. I'm really struggling. I'm dealing with doubt with disbelief, with temptation, with sin. Don't say that. Don't you know it reflects badly on Jesus? Don't you know Jesus wants to make everything better? And the, and, and the thing is he does, and he will. But today, while we're waiting for glory, Paul says, we're still standing in grace, including grace for our struggles. Back to Pastor Sam, I'm going to quote. We're not Jesus' PR agents. And he is not our client. We're broken men and women, and he is our Savior. It's not the case that I need to look good so Jesus can look good. I need to be honest about my colossal spiritual need so he can look all-sufficient. I don't increase so he can increase. I decrease so he can increase. That means honest. That means being honest about my flaws, not embarrassed about them. That's pretty good. You know who says it even better? Is our brother Rod Walker. We had a celebration of Rod's life here yesterday and Thank you, by the way, to everyone who served. It was a really special gathering. And a lot of people said a lot of wonderful things about our brother. But, man, the one that just floored me, me, was a sister in, in our fellowship, a mom, talking about going back to pick her kids up one day from Children's Church. One day that she was having a really hard day. One day that she wasn't fine. Rod's ushering back there in Children's Church hallway, notices our sister not having a good day, and asks, can I pray for you? And she responds the way that we've all been trained to respond, the way that we've trained ourselves to respond, oh, that's okay, I'm okay, I'm fine. And he says, no, you're not okay. And it's okay that you're not okay. And then as she told the story yesterday, she, she's looking down at her kids. By, by that time, they joined her. And they're watching mom be very conspicuously not okay in the middle of the hallway. And Rod says, that's okay too. It's okay that your kids see you struggle. If you're going to teach them about Jesus, they need to see you struggle. 
If we want our kids to understand the life that we have in Christ, they need to understand that struggle is a part of it. And, that, and, that, and that's so right. This, this is me talking now. But it's me agreeing with what Rod was saying. That's so thoroughly right. Because what Rod was saying is we need to teach our children grace. And we need to teach new believers grace. And we need to remind each other grace. That we need it. That it's okay to ask for it. That we can take refuge in it. Because that's our opportunity. Trying to convince the world that we don't sin and that we don't struggle because Jesus. A, the world isn't going to buy it. B, when it turns out not to be true, we've lost all credibility. That's not our opportunity. To rep Jesus? To, be, to look good so that he looks good? No, our, our opportunity is to show the world and to show the church coming in from the world what to do with sin and where to go with struggle. There's a reason Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that God put his grace where? Earthen vessels, crack clay pots. There's a reason he put his grace in us so people would be able to see his grace shining out. Shining forth from weakness, not our past weakness, not our former weakness, our present, current, ongoing weakness. What if, what if we actually embrace that? What if instead of denying our present need for grace, we made it our rallying cry? Pastor Sam again, imagine the difference that this would make to our church life. Rather than having a stigma about being anything less than spiritually sorted, sorted out, we could come together as a group of people who were open and free about our colossal spiritual need. The assumption would no longer be, you have to be good if you're coming here. It would instead be, you must be a real mess to show up here. I'm glad I'm not the only one. The thing about the pastor I was talking about earlier, the one with the daughter, I filled in for him on a Sunday morning when the abuse was still going on. And his daughter came forward for prayer. In fact, she came forward to pray with me. And I could see in her eyes that, that something was going on. There, there was something heavy, something deep, something, something it seemed like part of her at least wanted to tell me. But she didn't. She just said, pray for me, and I prayed for her. I didn't push it. I asked her about it years later, after everything had been revealed and everything had been, and actually after she was married and she said, yeah, I remember. And yeah, part of me wanted to just spill everything, but I couldn't. I said, you couldn't. She said, I didn't want people to know I was a mess. I didn't want to let people down. I didn't want to make my dad or my church look bad. I just couldn't, she said. And if I'm honest, I just couldn't either. Couldn't, wouldn't, didn't. I could tell she was dealing with something. Part of me didn't want to know. I'm a guest teacher. I don't know this person. How is it my place to push? So I didn't push. Together we entered into our own little don't ask, don't tell covenant. 
And, 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 and I don't want to make myself a bigger part of the story than I was. It was one morning out of something that went on for years. But, you know, Rod didn't know the sister he stopped in the hallway. They'd never spoken, except maybe to say hi. And it didn't stop him from saying, hey, can I pray for you? I can tell things aren't okay. That young woman had bought into the lie that Satan tells. And, and, and in a small way, I, I let her, I was complicit, I let her keep believing it. At least I didn't, I didn't help her stop. The lie that once we're saved, we're supposed to have it all together. We're supposed to keep it all together, all the time, all together. And if you don't have it all together, you must not love Jesus. Or you must not love him enough. Because if you loved him enough, you'd be more together and you're not together. You better not let anyone know because you'll spoil it for everyone and Jesus won't love you. That's the lie Satan tells us. What's the truth Jesus tells us? Grace. Grace. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. Whatever's going on around us, whatever's going on with us, whatever's happening within us, we stand in grace. We're children of God no matter what. When we've got it together, we're children of God. When we're falling apart, we're children of God. When we wrestle with temptation, we're children of God. When we succumb to sin, we're children of God. We belong to Him. And we always will. The words John Newton wrote, author of Amazing Grace, he wrote for all of us. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I didn't look it up. <laughs> but none of us are what we ought to be. Not yet. None of us are what we want to be. None of us are what we're going to be. But by the grace of God, none of us are who we used to be. By the amazing grace of God, we are who we are. Children of God. And he loves us. There isn't any question about that. None. The question, as we wrap up this morning, the question that we need to ask is, can we love each other? Can you and I, you and I in this church, you and I, Calvary, have grace for each other? Can this be a place, truly, where it's okay to not be okay? I want to find out.